Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. We are wrapping up this morning our topical series on um, Church 101. We went back to the beginning, as it were, uh, the basics. What is the church supposed to be committed to? And we've looked at a number of those um, seven. This will be number seven in our, our series. And we'll do a quick review at the end. But this morning, I want to zero in on the topic of evangelism. When you think about the topic of evangelism, what picture comes to your mind? Think about uh, evangelistic uh, enterprise. What, what does that look like? I think if we're honest, for many of us, it looks a lot, and we think of it in terms of the way the Acts describes it in a number of places. For instance, in Acts 2, in uh, chapter uh, 2, verse 40, we see um, Peter preaching, and it says, And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And so then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day were added about 3,000 souls. We see this picture here of uh, kind of preaching before a crowd and this massive turning and trusting in Jesus. That's what we often think about when we think about evangelism. Or later on in Acts chapter 4, in verse 4, but many of those who had heard the message of Peter and John believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. So you see again this preaching, apostolic preaching, and what? Massive Revival, massive turning to, to Christ. We see this again in chapter 5 as the apostles preach in verses 12 to 14. And in Acts chapter 8, once again, Philip is preaching in verses 4 to 6. And those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. And the crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. People are hearing the gospel. People are responding to the gospel. Um, when we think about evangelism, we often think about that. We often don't think as much about for example, later on in chapter 8, verse 35, the scene where Philip is speaking with the eunuch, and he says in verse 35, he opened his mouth, and beginning from the scripture, he preached Jesus to him. We don't think of it in terms of a one-on-one -on -one interaction. We don't think of it as, as, as Acts chapter 16, verse 30, describes where Peter, I mean, uh, Paul and Silas are um, released from prison in Acts chapter 16 and verse 30. And he says, this man, this jailer, takes them out of prison. And he says, sir, what must I do to be saved? And it says, and then he said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in the house. Um, if we're honest, when we think about evangelism, we often think of it in terms of the former rather than the latter. We think of it in terms of an event, large crowds, um, massive revival, powerful proclamation, people repenting in dust and ashes when we think about evangelism. 
We don't think of it often in terms of some sitting down with someone and explaining the truth about Christ to them or walking someone through a trial and then bringing the gospel hope to bear in that trial or sharing your own testimony as Paul does in Acts chapter 26 with Agrippa and then explaining how Jesus is the Savior of the world. We don't think of it in terms of a one-on-one But the reality is that God saves individuals, not groups. And the church of God advances one soul at a time, not one auditorium at a time. And so if we're going to partner with God in this process of building and establishing his church, then we have to be committed to this uh, work of personal evangelism. It has to be something that consumes us. Christ we know, has promised to build his church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. But he does that brick by brick, soul by soul. And as God has not only ordained the ends of who will be saved, he's also ordained the means by which they are saved, and the means by which God saves is the foolishness of the message preached. You remember from our study in 1 Corinthians just uh, back in chapter 1, in verse 21, he says, For the wisdom of God, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom didn't come to know God, but God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles Foolishness, but to those who were called, both Jew and Greek, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So, to some, the message of salvation is foolishness. To others, it is a stumbling block. But to those whom Christ is drawing to himself, the message is the power of God, and it is the wisdom of God. It operates in that way. So, if we're going to be the kind of church that prevails against all adversaries... Once again, we must be committed to this work of personal evangelism. And I'm going to give you three, um, I guess, reasons uh, that we must be committed to this work of personal evangelism. First, because God has given us a mandate to share the gospel. God has given us a mandate to share the gospel. Uh, Not only that, he's given us every motivation to share the gospel, and we'll unpack that in the second part of our outline And he has also explained the mechanics of sharing the gospel. And we'll see that as the kind of third and final point in our study this morning. So we must be committed to personal evangelism first because God has given us a mandate, um, standing orders, if you will, to share the gospel. And I would imagine for many of you, when you think about a mandate, to share the gospel, your mind initially races toward what passage? Where does your mind automatically go when you think about this mandate to preach the gospel? It goes to where? The Great Commission, right? It's Matthew 28. And indeed, that's worth considering. Um, and uh, we, we have already looked at that a little bit as we talked about discipleship. But in verses 19 and 20, Jesus says, Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That is a compelling mandate, (laughs) to go and preach the gospel. 
He's explicitly commissioning the apostles and by extension all of us to make disciples. And we looked at that in detail in our, I think it was part four on discipleship. So I'm not going to repeat all of what we said there, but as we think about the mandate God has given us to share the gospel, I want to go, I want to actually pan out even wider than this passage. Instead of looking at the Great Commission, I want to instead point your attention to the greatest commission. And that is in another section of Scripture in Mark chapter 12. So look with me at Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34. Mark's gospel gives us what you, we, we could call this the greatest commission. Um, and in the context here, in the preceding verses, uh, scribes and others have come to Jesus and, um, and they're critical of him. They're obviously in, in confrontation with him at this point in his ministry. Uh, Pharisees are there. They're, it describes the Herodians in the preceding verses. Sadducees are there. And they're striving and seeking to trap Jesus. Verse 13, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. They wanted to trip him up. They wanted him to make a statement that they thought would kind of torpedo his ministry and his influence. And uh, so they ask him about, well, you know, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And so then he un unpacks that question. And then they ask him, is there a resurrection? And then he un packs and answers that question. And uh, he kind of point for point uh, addresses them and sort of confronts them without them being able to trip him up. And a scribe was so impressed with Jesus and puts, at the end of all this, he puts this question to Jesus in verse 28, and he says this, one of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well and asked him, Jesus, what commandment is the foremost of all? So, again, understanding the context, the rabbis at this time and even since have, had gone through the Pentateuch and categorized all the commandments in the Old Testament. I think they had something like 613 of them that they had explicitly written down. 248 at that time were viewed as um, positive sort of things you must do, and 365 were negative things that you should not do, all supposedly out of the law. Uh, and then they even, amongst those, some were kind of weighted more heavily than others. There's like the big rules, the really important rules, and then the, the lighter ones that, um, and of course there's disagreements between rabbis as, you know, which ones were the biggest. And so that was sort of, that was the world they were coming out of where all the commandments were there and they were always sort of debating what was the greatest, what was the most important. And so Jesus is, you know, he seems to know what's going on. He's answering all their questions with great wisdom and insight. So they say, well, what's the greatest commandment? Maybe Jesus can settle this once and for all. And Jesus answers them in this question in verses 29 to 30. And he quotes Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, verses six, chapter 6, verse 4 to 5. He says to them, the foremost is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the greatest commandment, according to the Lord, is to love 
the Lord above everything else. To love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's everything about your being. Physically, mentally, your soul, your body. Everything is to be to, out of love for God. And then we are to, by extension, to love our neighbor, those around us on a horizontal level. It's a quotation, of course, from Leviticus 19, verse 18. Jesus says, There's no other commandments greater than these. The man's entire moral duty, man's entire responsibility under the law could be summarized as love God and love others. Matthew 22, verse 40, which is a parallel kind of record of this interaction, Jesus says, On these two commandments hang the law and the prophets. In other words, the whole Old Testament. So first and foremost, we must love God with every fiber of our being, and we must do that, secondly, by loving one another. James 2 refers to this as the royal law. That's the term he uses. It's a commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says in Ephesians 5, verse 29, No one ever hated his own flesh, and but what? Nourishes it and cherishes it. In other words, instinctually, we do what we think, even if it's not on the face of it right or helpful, we do what we think is best for ourselves. We, we don't need to be taught to love ourselves. We already love ourselves way, way too much. So let me ask you this question in response. How many of you wish to be condemned to eternal damnation? How many of you are, in your heart of hearts, want to perish forever in a place that the Bible tells us is filled with weeping and gnashing of teeth? How many of you uh, want to go to a place the Scripture describes as outer darkness? How many of you want to go a place of conscious torment referred to as the lake of fire? No, nobody in their right mind wants any part of that. Nobody wants that. What do we want for ourselves? We want forgiveness. We want grace. We want eternal joy. We want freedom from sin. We want to be able to be set free not only from sin's presence, but its consequences and have fellowship with God and with his people. If that is what you and I want for ourselves, and it should be, according to Mark 20, uh, 12, verse 31, then we should want that for others. We should want that for them. Jesus commands us to love our neighbor in the way that we would love ourselves in that situation. If you're a Christian, the forgiveness and the hope that you and I enjoy in Christ is the greatest dimension of your life. In my life. And therefore, we must plead with our neighbor to lay hold of that same forgiveness that God in his grace has extended to us, the same hope that God in his kindness has shown us in the gospel. The mandate to share the gospel is the commandment to love our neighbor the way we love ourselves. If the hope of the gospel was good enough for you to forsake everything and follow Christ, is it not precious enough for others to do the same? Next time we make excuses for not sharing the gospel with someone that the Lord is prompting our hearts about, we need to come to terms with the fact that 
that more often than not, we're simply not obeying this command to love our neighbor as ourselves. So often when you hear messages on missions or messages on evangelism, the pastor or preacher will talk about the motivation for evangelism is love. Actually, that's more the mandate. That's the mandate. It's not so much the motivation. The mandate for sharing the gospel is this commandment to love our neighbor as ourselves. But that doesn't mean there isn't a motivation. And that's what we want to look at in our second point. We are to share the gospel and be committed to personal evangelism because Christ has given us a mandate to do so. But secondly, we're committed to personal evangelism because God has provided us every motivation to share the gospel. So we are going to get to the motivation. What is that motivation? Let me give you kind of two sub-points here, two, two powerful encouragements that motivate you and I to preach Christ and proclaim the gospel. First, his powerful presence his powerful presence. If you look at Matthew 28 again, at the end, in verse 20, Jesus gives this statement. He says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So the first motivation God's given us for sharing the gospel is his personal presence as we do it. You say, but wait, didn't Jesus go back to heaven? I mean, how is he with us? In what way is his presence among us? The answer, he is with us spiritually through the Holy Spirit. Turn to John 14. John 14, Jesus explains exactly how this all works. In verses 16 to 17, he says, I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So what he's describing here is the unique ministry of the Holy Spirit, new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit, beginning at the day of Pentecost, and before this, the Spirit's still at work, but he wasn't indwelling the believing heart at that point. He wasn't taking up residence in them. That is a unique ministry of the new covenant, which is inaugurated by Christ. But now, now he indwells us. And we were reminded of that even last week when we talked about fellowship, that we're united to Christ objectively through the Holy Spirit. Christ is with you because you are united to him through the Holy Spirit, who, of course, is one with the Father and the Son. To have the Holy Spirit is to be united to Christ, and to not have the Holy Spirit is to be disconnected from Christ. Romans 8, verse 9, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, that man does not belong to God to him. So those who have the Holy Spirit are united to Christ. Conversely, to be without the Spirit is to be disconnected from Christ. 
He goes on to say in Romans 8, verse 10, If Christ is in you through the body, though the body, excuse me, is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. He lives in us through his spirit. If you have been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2, verse 20 says, It is no longer you who live, but Christ lives in you. How does he do that? Through his spirit. So when Christ left this earth and he ascended to heaven, he did not leave us as orphans. He did not leave us alone on earth. He is with us even to the end of the age. That's why he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you after a little while. While the world will no longer see me, you will see me because I live. You will also live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. So, Our spiritual union with Christ means his personal presence is with us. You and I have the one whom all authority has been given in heaven and earth. He dwells in us. The one whom every knee will bow to, he dwells in us. The one who has conquered sin and death is in us and with us every moment of every day. And he can save sinners. His powerful presence is so real, so immediate, that 2 Corinthians 5 says it's as though God himself was making an appeal through us as we speak the gospel to the unbelievers in the world and around us. So this is a powerful motivation for you and I to step out in faith and to preach Christ. He is with us in his personal presence. But there's a second motivation. The scripture makes it clear that God is a God of truth, that he cannot lie. So when God makes a promise, he keeps it. And the second motivation is this, that God has given us his perfect promises. Not only his presence, his spiritual indwelling through the power of the Holy Spirit, but he has given us his promises that cannot fail. I just want to, as a cross-section, think about a, a handful of promises that give us motivation to preach the gospel with faithfulness. Um, Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the gospel message is divinely powerful to save. That's a promise given to us in the scriptures. Later on in chapter 10, in verse 17, it's a promise that many of us know well. He says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So saving faith is bestowed by those on those as they hear the gospel proclaimed. What a motivation then to preach Christ that Christ would work on every heart. We saw in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 21, that God chooses to save sinners through the foolishness of the message. That that the message is what, in in all of its kind of, as, as crazy as it looks to the unbeliever, it is the means by which God saves. It is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Isaiah 55 and verse 11 
reminds us that every time God's word is proclaimed, it accomplishes that which it goes forth, right? It does not return void. That's an evangelistic passage. John 6, in verse 37, Every person whom the Father has given to the Son will believe and be saved, and none, he says, will be lost. None will slip through his grasp. What a powerful promise by God that those who are his will be kept by him forever. None will be cast out. And of course, Romans 8 verse 31, nothing can separate us or anyone else from the love of Christ. That's just an appetizer sampler, if you will, of promises in the, in the New Testament of the promises that God has made to stir us up to share the gospel. They, these things cannot fail. They can't be left undone. You have his powerful presence, and you and I have his perfect promises to set before our minds if we're struggling to preach Christ, to be confident and courageous to proclaim the gospel. It motivates us to be about this work of personal evangelism. There's a third point we need to make. Not only has uh, God given us the mandate and unpacked for us the motivation, third, God has explained to us the mechanics of sharing the gospel. So not only do we know what we need to do and why we need to do it, he tells us how to do it. The Word of God gives us the mechanics of sharing the gospel. First, we pray. We pray. In 1 Timothy, Paul equates our walk with Christ. He describes it in using the imagery of warfare. He says we're fighting the good fight of faith. Now, obviously, we're not talking about actual warfare, physical warfare against the world. We're talking about a fight for the truth, a fight for a truth in a world that opposes and suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. We are engaged in a spiritual battle against, Paul says, rulers and authorities, uh, wicked forces in this darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Uh, it's a spiritual battle. And one of the weapons of our warfare is this gospel of peace. Ephesians 6, verse 15. We don and shod on our feet the gospel of peace. Well, what's the walkie-talkie that we use to call in those divine reinforcements of the gospel? It's prayer. Prayer is the, is the divine communication that happens that allows God to call in his, uh, for us to call in God's powerful Work, prayer, and personal evangelism are vitally connected in the New Testament. Second um, Thessalonians three, verse one, Paul asks the Thessalonian believers, pray for them as they preach the gospel, saying, He says, Pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified. Or uh, in chapter ten of Romans, verse one. Paul, speaking of his fellow Jews, he says, My brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer for, uh, to God for them is their salvation. 
So Paul prayed. He pleaded with God for their hearts to turn and see Jesus for who he really was. Colossians 4 verse 2, Paul says to the Colossian church, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up for us a door for the word so that we may speak the mystery of Christ for which I have been imprisoned. So not only are we to be devoted to prayer, we're to be devoted to prayer for the purpose of evangelistic outreach. So let me get even more practical. How should we pray as we go about this work of gospel proclamation? Let me give you four practical things you can pray for. First, these are all coming out of Scripture. Pray for peace. Pray for peace. 1 Timothy 2, 1-8 commands for you and I to pray for those in authority that those who are over us, first, that they may know Christ, we want them to be saved, and also that they would promote a stable and peaceful society in which we can live lives not just to be comfortable, but to be fruitful. That's the key to that prayer. As Paul says, you know, pray for those in authority that we may live peaceful and tranquil lives in all godliness and dignity. It's not so that we can have an easy life. It's because when, we, when, stabil, when, the, when the society is stable and when peace reigns, the gospel flourishes. So that's why we pray. We pray that there, we, we would experience peace so that we can be maximally fruitful. Second, pray that the word of the Lord would spread rapidly. I mean, we're just picking up Paul's prayers. It was good enough for Paul. It's good enough for me. He says... He wanted the word to spread rapidly and be magnified, glorified. So as we sow gospel seed, we need to pray that God would open hearts and ultimately draw sinners to himself, that he would widen the circle of praise. Uh, thirdly, pray for clarity and conviction. Pray for clarity and conviction. Colossians 4, verse 4, Paul says he prays, Ask them to pray that a door for the word would open and that he may make it clear, in other words, in the way I ought to speak. We need to pray for clarity. We need to pray for conviction when we share the gospel to make the truth as transparent, as complete as we can. And uh, fourth, pray for peace, the word of God to spread rapidly, clarity, Fourth, pray for more workers. Pray for more gospel laborers. Luke 10, verse 2, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers in his harvest. There are people out there everywhere. The problem isn't finding unbelievers. The problem is finding faithful laborers to sow gospel seed. That's the challenge to bring that harvest in. So, first, mechanically, if we think about the mechanics of preaching the gospel, we pray. Secondly, Jesus says, go. We're to go. When he gives a mandate, he says, go and make disciples, or literally make disciples in, the man in this manner, going. 
going. Throughout the book of Acts, Luke records this pattern of the church dispersing and the gospel being proclaimed. Reread Acts and you'll see, and they were scattered and they did this. And they scattered and they preached the gospel. Acts 1 verse 3, on that day a great persecution began after Stephen was martyred. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. They stayed in Jerusalem. And then it tells us as that increasing persecution pressed in on them, it says, therefore those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. didn't slow them down. It sent them out. They were going. It pushed the word further and further out from Jerusalem. Throughout the whole book of Acts, whether it's Peter or Paul, or Philip, or Barnabas, or whoever, we see this pattern of the church dispersing and gospel proclamation happening. As believers moving about, living their lives for Christ, under duress or not, they were proclaiming the good news. So it just highlights an important principle when it comes to sowing gospel seed, and it's this, that the church gathers on the Lord's day for worship, for edification, but they disperse to evangelize and to preach the gospel. When we gather here on Sunday, it's not primarily to evangelize the lost. That's not the purpose of our worship. It is not to woo the unbelieving culture. We are not here to... um, I guess, address the felt needs of unbelievers. The church gathers to hold God high through his word and to build up the body. These are the things that make us run to win. But we always recognize that in our midst, there are going to be unbelievers. There are almost always unbelievers in our midst. And whether those are young people that haven't quite gotten to the place of saving faith or whether it's people who are deceived and think they're saved and they've been going to church and they really don't know Christ or whether it's that person who wanders in off the street just thinking, I should probably go to church. I haven't been to church in a while. Whatever. We understand that there's going to be unbelievers in our midst. And so we still preach Christ and we, 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 we don't shy away from the gospel. We sing about the gospel. We, we, we speak about the gospel with one another. But... But what we're gathering to do on Sundays is not to um, cater to unbelievers. Sunday morning is for Christians. But the work of personal evangelism happens when we go out as we leave and live our lives in the world amongst our neighbors, amongst unbelievers in our workplaces, in our schools. It's not primarily my job as a pastor to preach the gospel and you guys just watch and wait while all that happens, it's everyone's responsibility. It's my job. It's your job. If you know Christ, it's your responsibility to preach Christ. And we do that as we go out into the world. We have to learn to live as ambassadors for Christ. That's what this means. Paul describes us as, though we are ambassadors for Christ... We are to think of ourselves as God making his appeal through us. This is how he does it. So I would encourage you to learn to live your life as an ambassador for Jesus Christ. I represent 
the king everywhere I go. Because as you go, there will be opportunities to proclaim his message of freedom and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Third, we pray, we go. What's the next step? Third, we speak. We speak. We pray to deploy God's power according to his will. We go out into the world to live our lives as ambassadors for Christ. And lastly, we proclaim or speak the message of what God has done to save sinners and warn them that in their condition, they must repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. Salvation is the work of God. Our responsibility in evangelism is to deliver the message, to preach it. So it's about faithfully communicating the divine truth of the gospel that Jesus Christ died for our sins in our place, that he rose from the grave in victorious power, and that through faith in him, not works, not heritage, nothing of your own doing, but faith in him, you can be rescued from your sins and made clean that you might have life eternal. So how do we do that? Let's get more practical again. How do we speak the message? First, use the word of God. Okay, Use the scriptures. Ephesians 6 tells us that the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. The Holy Spirit takes his word and he accomplishes that for which he sends it forth. So when you share the gospel, use the Bible. <laughs> Don't memorize a booklet. Don't memorize an outline. Use the scriptures. Use the scriptures. Understand where those thoughts and concepts are in the Bible and use the Bible to teach others what God's word says about sin, what God's word says about salvation, what it says about Jesus and who he is, and what does it mean to you know, trust him and follow him. Use the scriptures because they are powerful. Third, uh, secondly, be clear. So we speak by using the Bible, and we do that by speaking clearly. See, it doesn't depend on our... Um, persuasiveness. It doesn't depend on our wisdom. So there's no, there's no benefit to glossing over things. There's no benefit from hiding certain truths, the, the hard realities of man's sinful condition, or there's no reason to fail to explain the consequences of unbelief, that it leads to eternal judgment. Don't, don't shy away from that. Don't equivocate on the exclusivity of Christ. It doesn't get you anything. It doesn't buy you any advantage. Be clear. Be clear. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. That's, that's not up for debate. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. So be clear as you preach the gospel, as you speak the gospel. Get to the point. Speak the truth clearly. Third, be bold. Be bold. We can speak confidently 
because we know that the message is true. We know that the message is transformative, hopefully, in our own lives, in the lives of those around us in the church, and God will draw his own to himself. So be bold. But along with that boldness, fourth, be gracious. Be gracious. We can be confident, but not cocky. We can be bold, but that doesn't mean that we can be brash. Right? There, but by the grace of God, go I. Right? It's only because of God's kindness and his mercy directed to my heart, only then could I have known Christ. So be humble, knowing that God opposes the proud, but he extends grace to those who are lowly, who are humble. It's not about winning an argument with the unbeliever. It's not about convincing them by beating them to death with facts or theological debates. If they aren't interested or if they're combative, bow out graciously and live to fight another day. Don't burn every bridge on the way out of town. That's what it means to be winsome. Because we don't know when the opportunity may arise again to be able to minister God's truth in the gospel to them. If you are obnoxious and that turns them away from the message of the gospel, that's on you or me. But if, we, if they're offended by the message, that's on them. That's on them. So please be gracious. And I think the, the, the challenge that young believers have in their zeal and their passion is they want to they just tackle everybody and shake them f- to see what they have seen. And I would say that zeal is great. Praise God for that. Direct that toward your prayers. Direct that toward your study of the scriptures to better understand his word. And then as you go out, it says we're going to study next week as we get back into 1 Corinthians. Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast about it as if you have not received it? And so that tempers how we deal with people, how we speak to people, how we think about people. So, so be gracious. This is the mechanics. Use the Bible, be clear, be bold, and at the same time, be gracious. We can do both. This is the, this is the attitude we're to have. This is the mechanics of preaching the gospel. So there's a mandate, there's a motivation, and lastly, we've seen the mechanics of personal evangelism. If we're to be committed to personal evangelism, partnering with God in this work of building his church, he's going to do it one soul at a time, brick by brick, soul by soul. We must be willing to preach that message to the world, in a, knowing that the world, by and large, is going to consider it foolishness and reject it. We have to go in understanding that. We preach Christ crucified. Paul says that is a stumbling block to others. To the Jews, they couldn't even conceptualize that. The Gentiles think it was ridiculous. 
That makes no sense. The world says, get with the program. When we don't see the fruits of repentance, we may be tempted to think, well, maybe, maybe they're right. When you have that thought, I would just politely remind you of what Paul, how Paul ends that section in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, he reminds us of the foolishness of God. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The foolishness of God is wiser than anything man could conceptualize and reason within his own mind. God's weakness, whatever that would look like, is stronger than any of man's power. So let's commit ourselves to this afresh. Let's renew our commitment to this work of personal evangelism to build within the church a culture of discipleship that starts with the proclamation of the message of forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And let that be the way we live our lives. Listen, people shouldn't know what our politics are before they know what our eternal hope is. If believers were half as passionate to speak about Christ as they are to speak about the latest cable news talking points, we might actually see some semblance of spiritual revival. We need to be about this work. Everywhere we go, the good news should be pouring out of us like rivers of living water. They should see us for what we are in Christ, first and foremost. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what are people hearing from our mouths? What are people hearing from our lips? The point of this is as we delight in Christ, as we hope in Christ, as we're captivated by Christ, you will speak about him. You can't not speak about him. So these are our commitments as a church. There are other things that we're committed to, but these are the big ones. Expository preaching, worship, a lifestyle of worship, deliberate shepherding, transparent discipleship, proactive ministry. Last week we looked at intentional fellowship, and lastly, personal evangelism. And really, you can pick up personal evangelism, you can add another one, and that is planning. Sowing gospel seed that goes out and actually plants churches. Right? Because as the gospel goes out and souls are saved, there's always a need for more local churches. And so that's our, that's kind of the ex natural extension of this commitment to personal evangelism. So that's what the church is to be. That's what the church, our church is committed to. That's always been the case. As long as I've been here, and even before that, even if we didn't state it explicitly, these were the commitments that we had from the beginning. These are our commitments now. And it's a reminder for us as we go through 1 Corinthians and we see what the church shouldn't be, <laughs> that on the flip side, this is what we must be committed to. And as we lay hold of those commitments, we will fulfill our calling. We'll run the race with endurance. And we'll see the fruit we can say, well, we've done everything in our power.
So let's double down, triple down on that commitment. This is everyone's commitment. It's not just my commitment. Obviously, it's our commitment as leaders, but it needs to be your commitment, my commitment. And anyone who would join this church, link arms with us in ministry, this has to be their commitment as well. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness in laying out not only the promise that your church will press on against every adversary, but you've also laid out the way in which that will happen the core commitments, the things we must be uh, locked into, those are, things that, um, those are things that you spell out for us explicitly in the Scriptures. Help us to search them, hold them fast in our hearts. May we um, never become complacent in these things. It's easy to do that. It's easy to, to set those things aside and to, I don't know, to, to cling to other things that are more urgent or more... Um, I don't seem to be working better. But at the end of the day, it's these are the things that you lay out for us. Help us to love you so much that we can't help but speak about you with our family, with our um, neighbors and friends, loved ones, that we might see more and more souls added to your church, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. That concludes this recording. We hope you have been encouraged by the message you have heard. For more information about the gospel of Jesus Christ, additional sermon audio, or information about Cascades Bible Church, visit us online at cascadesbiblechurch.com.